Today's reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, beginning at verse 60. When many of Jesus' disciples heard, heard it, they said, this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Is it the spirit that gives life, the flesh that is useless? The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But among you, there are some who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe and who was the one that would betray him. And he said, for this reason, I have told you that no one come, can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. Because of this, his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the 12, do you wish to go away? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? Yet one of you was a devil. He was speaking of Judas, son of Simon, Iscariot, for he, though one of the 12, was going to betray him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, <clears throat> so just a uh, heads up, I don't see any young, younger ears here, but uh, I'll, I'm going to talk a little bit about this week, and so I just want you to, to be aware of that if you, if you need to uh, cover your kids' ears or take them out for a sec. Um, I'm going to be honest with you, this sermon uh, was, was hard to write. It was harder than normal. Uh, I don't know how your week has been, uh, but this week has been a full one for me. Uh, I got back from a conference yesterday that our church staff was at. I led worship at it uh, while trying to write today's message and also finishing up a chapter on my doctoral project. Uh, we got to be up in Philly um, for the conference right in the heart of Chinatown and, and travel is fun um, and also tiring. And maybe that contributed to how hard it's been to put this message together. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, at least for me, every time I preach there is an aspect of sermon writing that's, that's a grind. Uh, the creative process, the writing process, the discernment process. There's always an element that requires hard work and effort and discomfort, uh, but this week has felt more difficult than normal. It may also be because this week has also been full emotionally and spiritually, uh, with the Supreme Court hearings taking place just blocks away from here. And I know many friends, including some of you in this room, who have been feeling that same tension, uh, reliving trauma from your own lives, or helping friends to process, supporting loved ones, uh, or maybe even hearing about their experiences of sexual assault for the first time. I have friends who are survivors of sexual assault. I know people who reported it, who never reported it, who reported it and weren't believed, who didn't tell anyone for years after. The numbers uh, are that one in three women and one in six men will experience some form of sexual violence in their lifetime meaning that the likelihood is you know someone who is a survivor, even if you don't know that they are a survivor. And although I know these statistics, I know these stories, I know these people, uh, a hashtag on Twitter the other week, why I didn't report, uh, still crushed me. It broke my heart to see the effects of sin uh, played out through toxic masculinity and a culture of objectification and entitlement that led to hundreds and even thousands of women and men sharing their stories of rape and sexual assault and sexual abuse and the shame that drove them to stay quiet about them 
the reactions from others that drove them to repress their experiences. Um, I, don't have <clears throat> I don't have a neat and tidy statement. To those who are survivors, uh, I see you. Uh, more importantly, God sees you. God knows your story, even if I don't. Uh, if you're reliving the trauma of your experience and need connections to a counselor, we can help with that. If you've never shared your experience but have been weighed down by shame for years, know that God longs to free you from those burdens and from those chains. You can come and see me or, or, or Watson or Andrea or, or Stacy Schwenker, who's been our, our counseling consultant. You can, you can shoot us an email if you prefer. We will support you in whatever ways we can by uh, praying, by listening, by connecting you with a counselor or a therapist. If only it were as simple as saying, hey, let's not sexually assault people. But it's deeper than that. Let's not objectify people, particularly women. Let's refuse to acquiesce to a patriarchal, misogynistic culture that allows the bodies of women and girls to be the butt of jokes and the object of sexual gratification. Let's root out those things in our own lives, uh, wherever we are aware of them, and let's be open when someone else points out something we said or did that was less than helpful. Because sometimes we can't see those things. Sometimes our intentions uh, don't negate, the good intentions that we might have don't negate the impact we have. I'm going to give you an example of that. Ten years ago when I was in seminary, uh, a female friend and I began hanging out a lot. We got along really well. We had great long conversations late into the night. We'd go study together at coffee shops and go to the beach together. And I began to think there might be the possibility of a romantic relationship between us. And when I asked her out, though, she said she wasn't interested uh, in that way and hadn't been, but still really appreciated our friendship. Now, I'd been conditioned uh, by TV and rom-coms. Um, that's my diagnosis looking back. To persist, to pursue. You know, if only she could give me a chance, we'd be so great together. If she could only see how great a guy I am. So, you know, I'd, I'd still text and, and see if she wanted to hang out. And one time when she was babysitting a couple of our mutual friends' kid, I stopped by their apartment to say hi and came in. I watched some TV with her and I left. Uh, soon after that, I got an email from her in which she described me as manipulative and said she was willing to talk with me about it, but only if our mutual friends were present. She didn't want to meet with me and certainly not hang out with me anymore one-on-one. -on -one. It remains the only time in my life that anyone has called me uh, manipulative, to my face anyway. And I was in equal parts confused and really angry. I didn't, I didn't understand how this close friendship that at times had even given me cause to hope there was something more had devolved into a situation where she didn't even trust me to be alone with her. I was upset that someone could have thought that I had intentionally engineered something, a situation, or, which made me even more confused. And upset. Uh, eventually we, we had that meeting with our mutual friends present and she talked about how I'd refused to take no for an answer and made her feel uncomfortable. And particularly how that encounter in the apartment, even though I hadn't done anything, I hadn't tried to do anything, uh, had nonetheless by my presence made her feel unsafe. And I defensively had stated my intentions that I still cared about her. I would never want to make her feel unsafe and I felt hurt uh, by being called manipulative, but I apologized for how she felt and how, she, how I might have contributed to that. And, and still, but I still came away from that situation thinking, wow, she's bringing some baggage into this 
situation. Uh, poor me having to deal with the brunt of that. I mean, poor her too having that baggage. But by the grace of God, we, we were able to resume a friendship and have stayed really good friends actually over the years. But over the last couple of years, as, as I've been reading the stories of, of Me Too and Church Too, as, as women in particular have been sharing their testimonies, I've realized that my intentions, though not irrelevant, did not diminish the impact I had had on my friend. I did not mean to, would never mean to make her feel uncomfortable or trapped or unsafe, but I did. And so with 10 years of friendship under the bridge, I apologized again this time with a better understanding of what I was apologizing for. I apologize for putting her in that position, for making her feel what she did, for not listening and not understanding. I could have let it go. It's 10 years, but God wouldn't let me. See, sometimes we don't even see how we affect others. Sometimes we don't know the impact we have on them, and our intentions do matter, but the impact matters in spite of our intentions. The gospel compels us toward a better world. In Micah 4, 4, the prophet speaks of a day when everyone will sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid. A day when we and our sons and daughters never have to fear for our safety, for the integrity of our bodies and our being. A day when all broken things are made whole, when all the dead things are restored to life, when what is done in secret and hidden or forgotten or covered up is brought into the light. When God, who is doing so even now, finally and fully makes all things new. When the kingdom is on earth as it is in heaven and all things are as God would have them be. But here's the thing, and, and this, is, this is what I think the passage we're going to look at today also has to say. God is doing things, but we also have a role to play. We have a responsibility. We have a calling and a commission. The arc of the moral universe may bend toward justice, but God works through his people to put their shoulder against the beams of injustice to bring those structures crashing down. Culture changes because people make small changes in their own lives, and then other people make those changes, and then communities make those changes, and in that way, the world can be changed. But it starts with God working in us first. It starts with us choosing not only to not participate in misogynistic jokes, but to be the kind of people and for us to be the kind of community to whom someone who had been sexually assaulted would feel like they could come and know that they would not be shamed or rejected or disbelieved or laughed at or turned away, but that they could find in you a support and an advocate and a defender. I feel like Jesus would be that kind of person. In fact, I know I know Jesus is that kind of person. And if I'm a Christian, I'm called to be like him. We are called to be like him. Sometimes that means owning up to the ways we've hurt others, even if we didn't mean to, even if it's been a while. Sometimes that means being a supportive ear and shoulder to someone who needs to unburden themselves, maybe for the first time. Sometimes that means speaking up and speaking boldly against systems and structures and ingrained habits and culturally conditioned responses that seek to silence the vulnerable and the hurting and to sweep uncomfortable truths under the rug. Like I said, I don't, I don't have a tidy statement. I don't have a neat way to wrap this up. So I'm just going to ask you to join me in praying, as we did a moment ago, for God's kingdom to come on earth, 
but more specifically for God's healing and grace and freedom for victims and survivors of sexual assault and for God's conviction for perpetrators, for acknowledgement, repentance, and justice. Would you pray with me? God who sees and knows all things. God from whom nothing is hidden. We pray for, um, there's so many needs, God, but we pray for this one today. For the men and women who are still recovering or maybe haven't even begun the process of healing because they're, they're trapped. We pray for their liberation. We pray for their freedom. We pray that they would know that they are loved and that they are worthy, that you are with them. And God, whether that comes through a, you know, just a, a sense of your presence or whether it comes through somebody else coming alongside them, we ask that your will be done, that your kingdom would come, that all things would be as you would have them be. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, there's, there's, no, there's no really smooth transition from that, and I already gave you the punchline for the message. Uh, but let me take just a few minutes to look at the passage we, we heard read earlier at the end of John 6. So, John 6, verses 60 to 71. There's one way of preaching it that goes, goes like this. Here's the deal. Jesus has a high calling, a hard calling uh, on each of our lives. And it is, as his disciples said, it's difficult and hard to accept. Perhaps it even offends. The Greek word there is scandalize. It scandalizes. And people will be scandalized. People will be offended. We will be tempted to soften and soft-pedal Jesus' hard words in order to be relevant or in order to be liked or in order to avoid conflict. People will walk away from you or betray you or reject you or even persecute you because you're following Jesus, because you are pursuing the vision and the calling God has given you. But we are called to faithfulness to remain true to the one who has the words of eternal life, no matter what happens, no matter what others may say, no matter what the cost. So stand firm, stay strong, don't give up, and don't give in. All of that is true. All of that is true. And if that is what you need to hear today, if that's what you needed to be reminded of, hold on to that. If that's the message the Spirit is impressing on your soul, Already, don't lose that. But that is not all there is. The passage finds us still with Jesus and the disciples. This is sort of part three. Part one was two weeks ago, uh, not two weeks ago in the narrative, but two weeks ago in our preaching. Uh, two weeks ago when Jesus fed a crowd of thousands with five loaves of cheap barley bread and two sardine-sized fish. The crowd wanted to make him king because he, he clearly had power. But he withdrew because while he is a king, he was not a king in the way they wanted him to be a king. And then, you know, he walked on the water while his disciples rode across the sea. In part two, 
The crowd continued to follow him, and he said, and he said you're following because I, I, I fed you barley bread. I met your physical hunger. But I am the bread of life. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood in order to have the life that I have, which, as Andrea explained last week, may sound weird and cannibally to us, but it wasn't difficult for his listeners to understand or to comprehend. They would have known that he was saying, as he had said previously, that he was uniquely close to God the Father, and that in order to partake of the life of God, Zoe, eternal life, true life, or as Andrea said, the life that is uniquely possessed by God, they had to participate in and to partake of the whole life of Jesus. It wasn't hard for them to understand what he was saying, but it was hard to accept. Many of his disciples said this teaching is difficult. Who can accept it? And Jesus, knowing some of the murmurs that are going on, he brings it all out into the open. Uh, I said a couple of weeks ago that Jesus shows us that not everything has to be addressed and dealt with right now, but Jesus also shows us that sometimes you've just got to name things. Sometimes you've got to stop avoiding conflict and address the elephant in the room. But Jesus, being aware that his disciples were complaining about it, said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? He's foreshadowing his death and resurrection and his ascension, his return to heaven. He knew what was coming. He's saying, does, does me saying I, I came down from heaven offend you? Because, you know, I'm, I'm going back to. It was hard in, in Jesus' day for his listeners to accept that he might be the Son of God, sent by God. That, you know, that challenged their notions of who God was. And, and I think it can also be hard in our day for us to accept that Jesus might be God. I wonder if we're more comfortable treating Jesus as a, as a wise teacher who, who taught good things or, or even as a good example for us to imitate. In fact, based on conversations I've had with folks here in D.C., I know that's the case. Uh, I don't know about Jesus as God, but I definitely think we should put his words into practice as something I've heard before. And I do agree, we should put his words into practice, but... Jesus was pretty straightforward, not only about what we should do, but about who he thought he was. And we've seen, uh, by, we've seen their reactions in these first few chapters of John, and, and, and we know that Je Jesus' Jewish listeners were also pretty clear about who he said he was. And for the most part, they didn't like it. Now let me say that I think it's okay to have questions, to wonder how it all works to wonder if we are making a bigger deal out of a really good human being than we should. It's, it's, part of, it's a healthy part of spiritual development to get to a point where you question if the things you were taught are, are right, if the things really are as, as they've been presented to you. It's also a healthy part of spiritual development and a necessary step in order to be healthy to work through those questions, to talk through those questions, to explore those questions. And then it is also a healthy part of spiritual development to come to a point where you may realize you may not always be able to explain the how. That there are some things that may remain beyond our comprehension, and that's okay. That we actually may not know more than we do know. But healthy spiritual development goes through that journey, through that process. It doesn't just bypass all of the work and skip to the conclusion. The disciples, though, and it's clear that John is talking about the whole crowd and not just the twelve, they're still finding Jesus' comments difficult to accept, and so he clarifies in verse 63, it's the spirit that gives life. The flesh is useless. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 
He's making sure they understand he's not talking about actually eating his physical flesh and drinking his physical blood. He's contrasting the spirit with the flesh. Not his flesh, which he's just talked about as being life-giving, but flesh as in physical things. Flesh as uh, contrasted with, spiritual, uh, with the spirit. It's spiritual nourishment that he's talking about. Zoe, the life, the word, Greek word for life that is often found in John, the life that God possesses, eternal life, is given by the Spirit. It is a spiritual reality, as in beyond the physical. And he's making sure they understand that the way they feed on him, the way they partake of his life, the way they experience and receive the God life is by believing him. He says next, verse 64, but among you there are some who do not believe. As we've said before and will continue to say, believing in our day and age tends to be about intellectual assent, about what we agree with in our heads. But in the Jewish understanding and in the way that Jesus would have meant it, to believe is to trust that something is possible and to act as if it were true. Because that's how you really know if you believe something, by how you act in accordance with or in relation to that belief. You can say, I don't believe in gravity, but let me hold an object above your head and we'll figure out what you really believe. passage continues, for Jesus knew from the first who were the ones that did not believe and who was the one that would betray him. And he said, for this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. In other words, everything is grace. Everything begins with God's initiative, with God longing for relationship, with God's spirit stirring the longing in us for the things of heaven, the things for which we were created, with Jesus coming as God incarnate, coming to show us who God is, what God is like, and therefore who we as image bearers of God can be like and are called to be like. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that inspiring? The God of the universe is saying we can have life in him. He desires for us to have life in him, and he has made a way for us to have life in him. And yet, because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer went about with him. Because the things that are worthwhile aren't always easy. The things that are good and right and true and noble aren't always easy. In the words of an old song from the phrase, sometimes the hardest thing and the right thing are the same. As the English author G.K. Chesterton once said, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. Because of this, because of what he said, because of what he demanded of his disciples, many of them turned back and no longer went about with him. So Jesus asked the twelve, do you also wish to go away? I'm struck here by Jesus' vulnerability. I mean, sure, one way of looking at this is, is Jesus sort of riled up, turning on his disciples, wagging his finger in their faces. Are you going to be like those backsliders? That doesn't really jive with how he acts in the rest of the Gospels. Nor do I think he's, he's responding uh, codependently or anxiously. You know, you guys aren't going anywhere, right? Jesus knows who he is. the Son of God. He knows his mission. Salvation of humanity, the redemption of all creation, and he is also one who both as part of the Trinity and as a relational human being desires to be in relationship and in community 
He isn't begging them not to leave, and nor is he threatening them not to leave. He is asking them if they want to leave. He's offering them the choice. These words are hard. Following me can be difficult. Do you also wish to leave? I recently heard someone say, you can't change God. And, and there is in Christian tradition a concept called the immutability of God, which is the idea that, that God is unchangeable. God is immutably, unchangeably wise, gracious, kind, and loving. Those things do not change. Those characteristics of God cannot and do not change. But somewhere along the line, the idea of an unchangeable God became the idea well, that well, God's just going to do what God's going to do that we have no impact on God, that we can't change his mind. We can't affect what he does. That isn't what I see in Scripture. Not in the Old Testament when Abraham tries to bargain with God for the sake of a city, or when Moses intercedes for the people of Israel when God wants to leave them behind, or when the people of Nineveh repent upon hearing the prophetic call of Jonah. And that's certainly not what I see in the New Testament, in the person and life of Jesus, God in human form, who seems fully responsive to the needs and pleas of vulnerable human beings. I believe what we do affects God. When we choose to sin, to separate ourselves from God and from others, to hurt others, to gratify ourselves, when we choose to turn away from God, I believe God is grieved. Not, not in a petulant, sulking kind of way, but in a way that knows what's best for us and longs for us to have it and is sad when we turn away from it. Like any loving parent. See, the remaining verses show us that as I laid out in the beginning, we have a part to play in the story of life. And God cares what we choose to do. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He was speaking of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, for he, though one of the twelve, was going to betray him. In Jewish tradition and in John's gospel in particular, apostasy, or turning away from God, was one of the worst sins. And that's why, why Jesus describes the one who would betray him, and not just, not just turn away from him, but hand him over to his enemies as a devil. Now think of some of the less than kind names we use to insult people today. They're not meant to be taken literally. But what we see here what John lays out for us are two responses to Jesus. Two responses to the call of God. Two responses to the invitation of the Spirit. There's Judas who chose to betray Jesus. And there's Peter who, even though he didn't always get it right, and that's putting it mildly, chose to keep coming back to Jesus. Even when he failed. We don't know exactly why Judas betrayed Jesus. As we'll see later in John's Gospel, John thinks Judas was greedy and his greed eventually outweighed his loyalty. Some scholars think Judas might have come from a more militant sect of Jews, committed to violent resistance against the Roman Empire, and he was disappointed when Jesus didn't turn out to be the military leader he had hoped for. Peter, on the other hand, uh, good old speak first, think later Peter, Peter of the outspoken faith and the big face plants, Peter, who doesn't always know what he's saying, but he'll say it anyway. <laughs> Peter says, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. 
Now, Peter, Peter isn't my favorite disciple. He's, he's a little too extroverted for me, uh, too impulsive for me, too outspoken for me, too careless for me. But here, I love him. I love his faith, his admission, his acknowledgement. And maybe there's even some desperation too. To whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus has the words of eternal life, of God's life, the timeless kind of life. Jesus has, Jesus possesses, contains, owns those words. Who else would we go to for true life? Well, to be honest, we do go to other things for true life, don't we? I mean, we may know they don't actually offer true life, but we go to them because they offer us something resembling true life, a facade of true life, or, or to put it another way, uh, more instant gratification, less effortful gratification. I don't really know why Judas chose to betray Jesus. Maybe it was just the money, but knowing human nature, it was probably a few other things too. Disillusionment, disappointment. What do we turn to looking for life or at least some sort of gratification to tide us over? Relationships, sex, porn, alcohol, drugs, shopping, Netflix. What is it for you? To what do you go for life? Or rather, for pseudo-life? Because this season, we're exploring the gospel as a story of life. And more specifically, as a story of Zoe, of God life, of the God-filled life, of the eternal kind of life, of the life we see and find in Jesus. That's why we're simultaneously still inviting you and encouraging you to learn to practice Sabbath this fall, because there is Zoe there. If you haven't grabbed the Sabbath guide, there's plenty more on the connection table. A professor of mine once said, what quenches the, soul, the, what quenches the thirst of the human soul is to derive its meaning from the fullness and life of God. What quenches the thirst of the human soul is to derive its meaning from the fullness and life of God. And if this is true, we have to rethink our whole lives. Peter said, we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. This is my desire for us that we might come to believe and know and see and experience and live out the truth that Jesus is the Holy One of God, the source of God's life, the King of God's kingdom, the archetype and exemplar of true humanity. And we have a choice in the matter. Jesus doesn't threaten. Jesus doesn't beg. He asks. He invites. He offers. And He lets us choose. He's already chosen us, but he still wants us to choose him in return. After all, reciprocity is necessary for any genuine relationship. We are chosen just as Israel and Abraham and David were chosen, just as the disciples were chosen. Biblical scholar Marianne Mai Thompson says, as is evident from biblical precedent, to be chosen means to be called and designated by God for a particular vocation, and that is wonderful. She continues, as is also evident from God's choosing Israel, such choice does not guarantee faithful obedience. Don't we know it? Jesus knew Judas would turn away, and still he chose him. The message translation says handpicked. 
something profoundly powerful in that. I don't think it was just a functional act, you know, that Jesus was saying, I need someone to betray me later so this to all work out. Judas. <laughs> I think Jesus chose Judas because he wanted Judas. He wanted to be with Judas. He wanted Judas to be with him because he saw Judas' potential, because he loved Judas, because he longed for Judas to experience the God life and to invite others into it as well. Jesus knows that we may and do and will turn away. And he still chooses us, handpicks us. We have a part to play. We have an invitation to RSVP to. We have an offer on the table that's better than any we'll ever receive, more real and true than any other offer we inevitably pass it up for. Zoe, life, life with God, life in God, God in us and with us and working through us and around us, forming us and transforming us, redeeming us and, and, and turning our mistakes and our sin to His glory bringing forth goodness from what evil has tried to claim, bursting life out from the grave and bearing a blazing light into the darkness. God's kingdom come on earth as in heaven. God's will done in each of our lives because God's will is life and grace and peace and justice and righteousness and healing and wholeness. Every week we take communion together. The bread representing Jesus' body, his flesh that was broken for us and the juice representing his blood that was shed for us. And so we partake of communion as a symbol and a reminder of our spiritual feasting on him, our belief, our trust that what he says and who he is and what he claims to have done for us on the cross is not only possible, but is true. And we are restating our commitment to act on that reality when we leave this place. We go back into our homes with our families or our housemates or into our workplaces with our colleagues and bosses or online with what we say or post or on the phone. Taking communion is a statement of our commitment to live out our calling to Christ on this earth. To seek to see that kingdom in all of its glory and challenge. To seek that kingdom on earth in our lives, in our culture, in our city, in our church to root out the sin in our own lives. When we take communion, we are restating our commitment to Christ to root out the sin, anything that might keep us from Jesus in our own lives. And to call out with love and humility and courage the sin in the world. Not so that we might put ourselves on a pedestal or posture ourselves as holier than others, but because we long for everyone to know the life of God that Jesus came to offer and the love of God he came to show. Communion is also a reminder, in case we need it, that Christ chose you. Christ chose you. In all of your brokenness and sin, with all of your scars and shame, in all of your weakness and in spite of your so-called strengths, Christ chose you knowing you would falter and fall and sometimes stay down longer than you ought. 
Christ chose you. Knowing that the world would batter you and drive you to despair and desperation, Christ chose you because he longs for you to know the life of God that he came to offer and the love of God he came to show. So I want to invite the band to come on up. And I want to invite the communion service to come up. We'll have a couple stations up front. We'll give you the bread. You can dip it in the juice. There'll be a gluten-free station to my right. And we'll have prayer available as well. It might be something I've said. It might just be, you just need someone to pray with. But I invite you to come in solidarity with Peter, saying, Lord, to whom can we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and know that you are, Jesus, you are the Holy One of God. Would you pray with me? Spirit of life and light. Would you would you shine your light into those places that we've tried to hide? Those places in our lives where darkness has tried to set up a kingdom. You bring your life into those places where we've sort of resigned them to death. God, we, we, uh, we pray that for the, for the world. We pray that for all of creation. We pray that you would bring life where there is death and, and light where there is darkness. But we pray that you would start with us, that you wouldn't leave us out of that. We're not just talking abstract. We want to know your life. We want to experience your life. Thank you, Jesus, that you came to show us what God is like, to show us what life could be like. You didn't just come to preach at us, tell us smart things, Give us more information. He came that we might have life. And so whatever we need to experience that, Lord, would you make a way for us? Would you give us the courage and the boldness to respond? Pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.